Welcome back to Spilt Milk, everybody. I'm your host, Sage McBee, back with another solo episode of Sage Stories, the segment where I talk about things that have been on my mind and that I just feel are worth sharing with you all. I myself am just freshly done with finals for fall semester, so, you know, breathing some breaths of fresh air finally in my first full week of winter break. And uh, since they actually extended our winter break to be almost two months long because of COVID shit, um, I'm looking to have plenty of time to put out a good number of episodes for the show, which is pretty exciting, both with my co-host Jeannie and just with these solo episodes of Sage Stories. On the topic of Sage Stories, I actually have a couple ideas here in the works already. I recently got a recommendation from a friend to revisit some of the Tinder and online dating scene that Jeannie and I covered at the start of the school year, but from a much more personal perspective this time, for I have continued to hate Bumble and Tinder and other dating apps far less than I thought I was going to. So anyways, that should be a pretty fun episode to put out just to recap my experiences with it and opinions on it. I'm also planning on revisiting the American Authoritarian episode that I just put out last week, just to clean up the edges a little bit, maybe emphasize a few things, or add in some content that I forgot in my rush to finish that final. I thought I did a good job overall, but there's definitely a few things that I could make a little bit clearer, and I've had, you know, a week to consider it a bit more, and have some conversations about it. So, that should be coming out here soon as well. After last week's episode, I really wanted to keep this episode a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more casual and fun, you know? I really wanted to, but in classic Sage fashion and 2020 fashion, I got inspired by a few things that have happened this week and last to talk about something a little bit more serious. This episode, I want to talk about the phenomenon of mass distrust. There are a bajillion crazy things that could be said to have defined the year, from global wildfires, to World War III, to this crazy pandemic, to TikTok, you know, whatever. A lot of things have happened this year. But what I think is on a ton of people's minds nowadays, not only in 2020, but since 2016 perhaps, is this profound decrease in a sense of trust for major U.S. institutions. I myself would highlight this feature in particular because it's one of the rare things in life and in politics that goes completely across the aisle. Many liberals see the police as a corrupt and evil institution designed solely to oppress and kill black people. Many conservatives think that the coronavirus is a hoax and consider mask regulations to be an infringement on their personal freedom and the sign of a dictatorial state. Both sides have brought up political coups and election fraud so frickin' much that it's hurting my brain. And if there's one thing that they can all agree upon, it's that the opposing side has representative politicians who are out to destroy the country at large. If I was going to name the primary areas of distrust in 2020, I would say distrust in the media, distrust in COVID regulations, in the election process, and in the police. Some of these are completely new, namely the COVID-related stuff, but others have been increasing in prominence for quite some time and only came to a climax this year. Coming at it from the liberal side of the spectrum, both in terms of personal preference and geographic location, I see conflict over the first three being played out center stage every single day, this being distrust in the media, COVID regulations, and the election process. Why aren't these Trumpies over the election? It's over. Trump lost. And why the heck are people still not wearing masks and going to visit their friends and family during the holidays? Do your research. 
Listen to the scientists and the politicians. Well, some of them at least. Lately, social media has been ripe with these flavors of fear, confusion, and outrage. I myself had to get off Instagram a couple months back because it was getting to be a bit too much, and I refused to get on Twitter or Facebook for the same reason. These emotions are certainly understandable, though. Why are people losing trust in some of the most reliable and foundational U.S. institutions, especially during a pandemic when lives are actually at stake every day? It's easy to place this social and cultural crisis at Trump's feet, as Trump's role in breeding such tremendous distrust must not be understated. The majority of his appeal in 2016, and still to a degree today, for example, has been sowing doubt and acting as a chaos agent, as I covered much more extensively in my last episode. However, there are two important reasons why I don't see the value in covering his role in this mess during this episode. For one, it's been overdone already on every single news outlet for the last four years, and doesn't really even matter. There's nothing we can do to control Trump's actions, and even if we could, he's on his way out very soon, at least in a presidential and political capacity. And two, perhaps even more importantly, distrust does not tend to thrive in a vacuum. Trump has certainly fed on and exacerbated existing public doubt in countless institutions, but that distrust long preceded his involvement. Only an Orwellian authoritarian state that has completely enveloped and isolated its people can create pervasive narratives based entirely on falsehoods. Although some hints of such, environments such an environment exists on the country's peripheries, as I covered in the last episode, we clearly don't live in such a country yet, meaning that the profound distrust we see today must not be entirely unfounded. Rather, I see it to be based on a series of partial truths, and it's my job today to discuss the truth side, and so that we might be able to better empathize with those with different perspectives. I don't want to narrow it down just to the other side of the political chasm, for I know plenty of like-minded progressive liberals even, who are doubtful and distrustful of the media and the government's response to COVID and the regulations it has provided. As we get into these four stories, I would urge listeners to consider one thing above all. Why do people come to the conclusions that they do about these influential figures and institutions? After all, we don't have to agree with other people's opinions, doubts, and complaints in order to understand how they came to those conclusions, and perhaps even understand them as the rational perspective and take considering their social context. Lastly. I don't intend for these stories to act as any sort of end-all be-all regarding the conversation about distrust in American institutions. That conversation is much broader and much more historically based, and would require a great deal of episodes in order to just scratch the surface. These four case studies are merely ones that struck me, and ones that I found to be particularly revealing of some of the major themes in the current situation that we're all dealing with. Without any further ado, let's hop on in. Our first story brings us back to spring 2020, when the coronavirus epidemic was just beginning to spiral out of control in the United States. It also brings us back to the man appointed to the White House Coronavirus Task Force in late January, who has essentially become the primary public health spokesperson for the Trump administration during the entirety of the pandemic. 
I'm speaking, of course, about Dr. Anthony Fauci, the American physician who has served as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases since 1984. Fauci has come under considerable fire during the course of the pandemic and is pretty despised by the majority of the more conservative community. Many politicians, pundits, and just average Americans have called him a liar and denounced his medical advocations as highly hypocritical, particularly when they come to mass gatherings such as the BLM protests. Now, I actually looked into this for quite some time and couldn't find much evidence for the hypocrisy that people have claimed. It's true that Fauci distanced himself on multiple occasions from commenting directly on the efficacy of the protests, even when people like Representative Jim Jordan attempted to goad him into tying them into unsafe conditions for COVID. Of course, it's also true that commenting on cultural issues is not his job, as well as the fact that he had similar things to say about more bipartisan, if not Republican-leading group gatherings, such as the Memorial Day celebrations. Essentially, here are the dangers that you should know, but I'm not going to stop you from doing anything. In a House Oversight Committee hearing, he said, quote, I'm not going to opine on limiting anything. I'm telling you what the danger is, and you can make your own conclusions about that. You should stay away from crowds, no matter where the crowds are. This is not to say that Fauci's refusal to directly call out the BLM protests for their COVID risks was nece necessarily the right decision. I mean, it certainly put a lot of people's panties in twists and likely contributed to the wildfire of distrust regarding public health institutions. It seems that in this case, though, many people are misattributing this hypocritical treatment of massive gatherings to Fauci, something that the media is certainly culpable of, but Fauci has actually been pretty detached from throughout the entire ordeal. The one thing I have found to be objectively problematic in Fauci's rhetoric relates to his early advocacy, or rather lack of advocacy, for mask wearing. Let's listen to this brief segment from 60 Minutes, published in March. There's a lot of confusion among people and misinformation surrounding face masks. Can you discuss that? The masks are important for someone who's infected to prevent them from infecting someone else. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it? Because people are listening really no, closely to this. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. When you're in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better, and it might even block a, a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. And often, there are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. When you think masks, you should think of healthcare providers needing them and people who are ill. This is the clip that people always point to when trying to prove that COVID is a hoax or that there is no objective reason to believe any of the regulations that the CDC and the government are putting forth. And at face value, there is some merit to this critique. Not the hoax part, but that Fauci clearly advocates against mask usage by the public, something that is ubiquitous to our lives today, only a few months later. This can lead to the obvious question of, if masks aren't that good of an idea, then why are we using them? And if they are a good idea, why weren't we told that in the first place when the pandemic was just beginning? 
It's important to remember, of course, that this was a different period in time when scientists knew much less about the, the coronavirus, and it just wasn't as bad in America. We were in a completely different state of events. Fauci is also correctly pointing out here that masks are not a perfect end-all be-all solution, which is extremely important information to have. However, this next clip I am about to show you from The Street provides a slightly less innocent mistake-esque narrative about the whole situation. Let's listen. Dr. Fauci, I want to ask you specifically about masks. Now, I'm in South Carolina right now, and there's not a whole lot of people wearing masks. So I want to ask you specifically, can you define for people what the role of masks is? And why were we told to wait? Why were we told later in the spring to wear them when we initially were told not to? Fauci begins by restating how masks are not 100% effective and must be combined with social distancing in order to actually work to prevent COVID. Then he says this. Now, getting back to your first question, which was what about a month or so or two or three ago when people were saying, you don't really need to wear a mask? Well, the reason for that is that we were concerned, the public health community, and many people were saying this, were concerned that it was at a time when personal protective equipment, including the N95 masks and the surgical masks, were in very short supply. And we wanted to make sure that the people, namely the healthcare workers, who were brave enough to put themselves in a harm ways to take care of people who you know were infected with the coronavirus and the danger of them getting infected, we did not want them to be without the equipment that they needed. So there was not enthusiasm about going out and everybody buying a mask or getting a mask. We were afraid that that would deter away from the people who really needed it. What Dr. Fauci is essentially saying in this drawn out response is that the CDC intentionally misled the public about mask usage for months in order to preserve masks for healthcare workers. While I'm not sure that this counts as blatant lying, since Fauci did allude to this argument in his earlier comments and has always attested to the relative effectiveness of masks, this doesn't change the fact of the matter that the CDC and Fauci's radical flip-flopping on mask recommendations was due primarily to contextual factors, not scientific ones. This relates to a broader pattern of governmental and authoritative agencies thinking that they know what is best for people. And I think that's something that really irks a large percentage of the populace. Now, obviously it is the government's job to know what is best for us on many occasions, and I'm certainly not arguing for the disillusionment of law and justice. That's an argument you'll only hear in ultra-libertarian anarchist circles. What I think I and many others find less redeemable is this almost authoritarian control of the very information we receive, as well as the ensuing Machiavellian explanation and justification for why the information was controlled in the first place. The situation with Fauci is much like a set of strict parents telling their kids not to do something just because they said so, or even making up a ridiculous explanation just because they're not worth their time and honesty. By this same token, the anger and rebelliousness directed towards the changing mask protocols could be seen as the adolescent stage in this cycle, where the kids find out that the parents were full of shit the whole time and decide to rebel from them. You might hear them say, even if they have known what is best for us a good chunk of the time, why should we listen to them if they haven't been honest and direct? 
You can therefore argue all day long that Fauci made the right decision, as being honest about the importance of masks may have caused a panic that would have deprived plenty of healthcare workers from the protection they needed. But does this really make up for the millions of Americans who have lost faith in the CDC, who will continue to refuse to obey the mask regulations because they think that they are false, that they're lies, that they are examples of further hypocrisy? I'm not sure. That's a matter of opinion and of theorizing. What I do know is that people respond very well to being treated with dignity and respect. And isn't the goal here to maximize the number of people following safety guidelines in order to curb the, the spread of the pandemic? I think that when you don't give people the chance to be good citizens, when you prioritize control and discipline over honesty, when you assume Americans to be irresponsible, irrational adolescents, then that is exactly how they are going to behave. For this second story, we remain on the topic of COVID-related distrust, and we also continue following the thread of institutional hypocrisy. Since COVID prevention regulations have not been federalized for the most part, Local government officials have largely been left to their own devices to figure out what to implement and how to implement it, leading to a wide array of intensity in COVID regulations around the country. After months of conflict on social media regarding not only the implementation of these regulations, but also centering upon those who have been more lax or even resistant to abiding by them, a new trend has come about that is both comically absurd and a little depressing. This is the pattern of exposing influential politicians breaking the very rules that they have set for the public to abide by during the pandemic. Caught on camera, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi seen getting her hair done inside a San Francisco salon, something that it goes against the city's health order, and it's all captured on surveillance video. Governor Newsom is seen sitting with members of multiple different households, all without masks. Though the new pictures came out Tuesday, the governor had already apologized at a press conference Monday. Austin Mayor Steve Adler is apologizing tonight for traveling to Mexico with a group of family and friends last month despite urging Austinites to stay home. In addition to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done during a lockdown, California Governor Gavin Newsom dining with a group of prominent lobbyists masks off in one of the nation's most COVID-regulated states, and Austin Mayor Steve Adler urging residents to stay at home from his vacation house in Mexico, other transgressors include Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and many, many more. What makes these cases so easily laughable is not that they're breaking COVID rules in general, but that they're often breaking their own rules, and in some of the most highly regulated states. It might be no wonder that more Democrats than Republicans have been outed for such behavior, since Democrats are, on average, taking the pandemic more seriously. But this doesn't make it any less disastrous for their public image, nor for the image of COVID as something to be treated with serious thought and concern. As Claremont McKenna political scientist John Pitney told The Hill, quote, When leaders break their own rules, they send a message that people should not take those rules seriously. That's always unfortunate. In this situation, it's dangerous. It enables people to rationalize risky behavior." End quote. 
I would extend this argument to say that not only does breaking one's own rules send a message that people shouldn't take those rules seriously, but it sends the message that people shouldn't take those individual leaders seriously. Just as Dr. Fauci's misleading comments about masks gave many people the perfect justification to consider everything else coming out of his mouth to be a potential lie, the hypocritical actions of high-profile politicians continue to devastate any semblance of mass public trust. To bring it back to the parent metaphor, breaking one's own rules downgrades a person from the realm of authority onto the public stage, essentially the point at which young adults realize that their parents are flawed human beings just like themselves. Even though we know our government officials to be humans too who make mistakes, confusing and hopeless times lead us to caricature them as pinnacle role models, just so that we can tear them down. There is little room for tolerance right now, and that's an atmosphere that politicians and pundits are just as responsible for creating as their subservient public. In the long run, it's necessary and valuable for children to recognize their parents as flawed entities, but such a recognition can lead to hatred and disassociation just as much as towards understanding, maturity, and a future relationship. And we're certainly leaning towards the former route at this current political moment. This next story focuses on the unfairness, both real and perceived, regarding the official and cultural enforcement of COVID regulations. By official, I'm referring to actual legal ruling and punishment, while cultural enforcement is done through personal interaction and social media, with shame as its primary motivating tool. There has been an utterly massive amount of outrage in the news over the supposedly unconstitutional or, at the very least, harmful effects of certain pandemic prevention rulings, from the restriction of church services and holiday celebrations to the shutting down of restaurants and other small businesses. Most of this section will involve me playing and responding to a pair of clips from the internet in which people claim to have been treated unfairly by the government, and I believe that they speak for themselves for the most part in terms of the pain and betrayal that people have felt during this time. This first clip comes from an article published by the New York Times on December 5th titled, quote, She couldn't open for outdoor dining, the film crew next door could, end quote, which I would suggest anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff to read. In this clip, a restaurant owner from L.A. County tearfully responds to the recent ban on outdoor dining that has devastated her small business, while a film crew freely opens up a series of tents next door and she claims that the government is enforcing an uneven application of the rules that is crushing small businesses like hers. Let's listen. So this is my place, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon. If you go to my page, you can see all the work I did for outdoor dining, for tables being seven feet apart. And I come in today because I'm organizing a protest and I came in to get stuff for that. And I walk into my parking lot and obviously, Mayor Garcetti has approved this. Here she gestures to a row of outdoor pavilions that have recently been set up. This being set up for, this being set up for, for a movie company. She pans around slowly and there are about 20 tents filled with tables. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. 
which is right over here. She pans to a large covered patio with plenty of outdoor seating, well spaced apart. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> they have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive. My staff cannot survive. To some extent, the California regulations certainly make sense, seeing as LA County alone is seeing the greatest acceleration in cases since the pandemic began. But you can't help but empathize with this woman, whose livelihood is being actively destroyed whether she contracts the disease or not. The comparatively lax regulations facing the nearby film set is just icing on the cake, with the clear implication that they are able to just do their thing because they make the state more money. Whether this be the actual reason or not doesn't really matter, as we've already seen money being prioritized over people's lives numerous times during the pandemic, from the emphasis on big business bailouts and a continued resistance against a second stimulus check, to the fact that New York City's bars have been left open while their restaurants and small businesses falter, merely because the city needs the revenue. This rush to compare the regulations one faces is reminiscent of childhood squabbles over favoritism between siblings. Who got punished worse? Who got to use the computer for longer? Etc, etc. Except the ramifications of these disproportionate regulations actually affect people's lives. And not just because of COVID. And for that reason alone, I don't think that they should be disregarded as disturbers of the peace or rebel rousers. Shut the fuck up, listen to people's stories, Maybe they are experiencing something they shouldn't be. <laughs> now, before I get too worked up, let's listen to one more clip. This is a video that went viral on December 7th of a business owner in Michigan criticizing the government for failing to protect small businesses from the economic fallout of COVID. This is a longer one, but I'm going to play most of it because I think it's really important to hear. My government leaders have abandoned me. Are you, are you the owner? Four trillion dollars of stimulus money. They gave it to who? Special interest groups and campaign donors. I'm Dave Morris. I own the place. So what's going on? What's going on? You know what's going on. Tell me. You tell me. Hey, we got a government that has taken the stimulus money. They gave it to special campaign donors. They gave it to special interest. They abandoned me and they have put me in a position where I have to fight back. Okay? So do you feel that this is the right thing to do? Absolutely. I feel everybody needs to stand up. Hey, listen, there was enough money to give every family, every family in this country, $20,000 to go home for two months. They chose to give it to special interests and campaign donors, the Kennedy Space Center, and they abandoned us. So you could have given me money. I'd gladly walk away for 60 days and let this virus settle down. I'm not going to do it alone. Okay. Are you going to continue to violate the state's orders and this stay open? Sta state order. This isn't an order. This is a conspiracy. This is a tyranny. What do you want to tell other restaurant owners who... Wake up. Stand up. This is America. Be free. I got patriots coming out supporting me the last two days. You know what? It's a great thing. Wake up. This is America. Don't let them ro uh, ramrod you. This is crazy when you turn around and you watch what's going on at Westing Avenue, the big department stores, the train station, the airports, side by side eating meals for four hours. And you're going to blame me? Come on. Come on. This is not right and you guys know it. Everybody knows it. Stand up, America. 
Give us the money to shut this thing down and calm this virus, but don't take it out on a select field. Is there anything else you want to add, sir? That's it, brother. All right. I'm glad you listened to me. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, uh, I'm really a humorous guy. Michigan just listened to you. You're okay. live on TV right now. All right. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, okay? Right. I'm really sir. a good guy. Yes, I've been married 38 years. i got a wife, three kids. i got four great grands. Let me tell you something. i got a good life, and I've worked hard for it. I'm not giving up easily. I'm not going down alone. They want me to go down and be quiet. They never want to hear from me again. I'm not going to put up with it. Got it's you. time to rise up. Got you. Got to rise up. Shut it all down or don't shut any of us down. That's the only way to get control of a virus. Wow. That was quite the packed interview. While you're formulating your thoughts, I'm going to share a few things that I found to be the most important takeaways from this man's perspective. Firstly, he clearly feels abandoned and betrayed, but not by Americans in general. Although he never labels a specific person or entity, he clearly feels betrayed by some higher authorities and power, higher politicians and lobbyist groups, people who can, he cannot touch. Another thing is that he actually speaks a lot of truth. He correctly calls out the special interest groups that receive the majority of stimulus money, as well as references the politicians and rich folks who have been able to disobey orders with minimal consequences. He also advocates strongly for the pay people to stay at home idea, and says that he would take whatever steps necessary if he felt confident that the government would take care of him and his family. This is completely reasonable, and an idea that I have advocated for myself on many occasions. This is all alongside some growing paranoia and conspiratorial thought, which may seem like a bizarre paradox, but is actually quite indicative of a normal person who is just starting to lose faith in something that they have believed in for so long. It's also this world of confusion and half-truths that makes people so vulnerable to extremist groups. In sociology, for example, we often talk about how cult members do not tend to be born that way, but rather created by some disastrous event in their life, which is further manipulated by some charismatic figure, such as Donald Trump in this case. What this man is clearly seeking is empathy, and not only for himself, for he claims to be standing up to the government because he wants to be able to support the people he cares about, not just because he's bored of staying at home or something like that. The conspiratorial sides to his speech are simply a distraction, an expression of the anger and confusion and despair that he feels. And as a quick side note, it's clear that some of those conspiracies are actually real. As I've already discussed, it's clear that money has played a major role in deciding who gets regulated and who gets to do whatever the heck they want in COVID, who gets bailed out and who does not. This is truth. This is not crazy talk. Overall, I think that this interview helps illustrate how the people in America who have become disillusioned with major U.S. institutions, the response to the pandemic and the election in particular, they really just want two primary things. The first is transparency and consistency. Treating one individual, group, or movement differently than another is a good way to get people riled the heck up, especially during a pandemic when people are already paranoid and afraid. The second is the simple confidence that they are going to be taken care of. As angry and distrustful as the Michigan man is at the government, he clearly states that he would stay home until the pandemic was over if he knew that he was going to be paid and taken care of while he was away from work. The citizenry of authoritarian countries like modern-day Russia and China display how most people are willing to put up with quite a bit restriction of personal freedom in exchange for relative contentment and happiness. The federal government's utter indifference towards the plight of average American workers during the course of this pandemic has by far been the scariest part of 2020 for me. 
If you're looking for the principal reason why so many people distrust the American government right now, just look up the poverty rates. Just look up the unemployment rates. In my opinion, the lead cause of profound distrust is profound despair. And this feeling is only exacerbated when someone nearby you is doing comparatively A-OK. -okay. The final story I have to share with you today is the most recent, but its themes harken all the way back to the very first and least recent, when I compared the CDC's flip-flopping over masks to a fearful government which thinks it knows what is best for its people and enacts this paranoid control through the media. So let me take us back a week and a half to December 2nd, when President Trump, after an abnormally long period of media silence, released a 46-minute monologue denouncing the results of the 2020 election and essentially accusing the Democratic Party, the Communists, and their mothers of election rigging and widespread voter fraud. The president may have not provided much substantive evidence for his claims, other than a couple normal-looking graphs, but he certainly talked about them for a long-ass time. Now, I ended up getting into a bit of an argument with my mom about this whole ordeal, not about the content of the speech, with we, which we both could easily agree was just utter hullabaloo, but rather about the way in which certain popular media outlets decided to treat the speech. CNN, for example, decided to refrain from airing the speech altogether, and had Chris Cuomo put out about a 10-minute piece explaining why. I found his explanation to be deeply unsatisfactory, however, for he spent almost the entire segment just attacking Republicans on grounds of empowering Donald Trump, which of course are valid claims, but had nothing to do with the title of the video or the purpose that it was supposed to fulfill. According to Jim Acosta, CNN's chief White House correspondent, the cable news network decided not to air any excerpts from the speech, quote, because the allegations made by the president have been rejected in the courts, as well as by state election officials from both parties, end quote. Like many others, he denounced it as a mere propaganda video. I can't deny that propaganda was the primary goal of Trump's monologue, but there are still two large holes in this narrative. For one, CNN and other left-leaning cable news networks have been airing Trump 24-7 since 2016, lies and all. Second, just because something is a propaganda video doesn't mean that it shouldn't be aired. Isn't that the purpose of virtually all political advertisements? The idea behind these is of course that even if they distort the truth, individual Americans are capable of figuring out what they believe and what they like on their own, of their own volition. They don't need a helping hand to guide them to the truth, or more specifically, to shield them from the supposed lies. So what's so different about Trump? The unspoken argument is something along the lines of his words being actually dangerous. And there is clearly a fear that what he says, people will do unquestioningly, and that these things will be destructive and violent. I won't deny that there are people who would die for Donald Trump. But the problem with trying to censor him after airing his words freely for so long is that it creates the perfect grounds for conspiracy theories to thrive, and it also emboldens the mystique that is already formed around the man. Don't believe me? Let's read some of the more popular YouTube comments on the video that was posted to YouTube on December 4th. Some of the comments referenced its censorship on cable news, such as, quote, The fact that this isn't on TV freaks me out, end quote, and, quote, Funny how the 2016 election recounts were all over the news, yet 2020, nothing but crickets, end quote. Many more comments reference supposed censorship using the YouTube algorithm itself, such as, 
quote, the view count on this keeps going down. We see you, YouTube, end quote. And, quote, this is really scary. YouTube is hiding this video from search results. It received 5 million views in the first two days, but has received only 400k in the past three since YouTube began to hide it, end quote. And finally, quote, try searching for this video by exact title. Videos with titles not even similar with less than 10,000 views and also are older appear before this video, end quote. I'm not sure about the view count thing, but it was really hard even for me to find the video on YouTube, so I wouldn't be surprised if there was some trickery going on with the YouTube algorithm. The fact of the matter is that none of this behavior is helpful. Censoring Trump's speech from cable news and making it really difficult to access on YouTube keeps some people from viewing it, but those who do will be infuriated to find a video about the very censorship claims that have supposedly afflicted the video itself. They will also find an online community of people who share pretty similar opinions to them, people who are fearful, who are angry, and above all, who are distrustful, and seemingly for good reason, as the YouTube and CNN censorship stuff shows, just not for the election stuff that Trump himself is talking about. But this will, of course, all get mixed into an overarching conspiracy that suddenly does not need many facts in order to convince people to get on board. CNN and YouTube and whatever other apps are involved are basically saying, here, leave the at least somewhat moderated and bipartisan safety of cable news and enjoy a one-way ticket to conspiracy land. They are allowing Trump's unfounded allegations to coalesce with the partial truths of actual censorship issues, and are thus ensuring that they remain topical for years to come. So what are the takeaways from all this? Well, for one thing, censorship is a great way to create both a victim and an underdog, two roles that Trump is excellent at exploiting, and two things that people really find appealing for whatever reason. There also appears to be a vicious cycle of distrust, disobedience, and domination in modern politics, which follows the parental pattern of adolescence. Submissive party starts losing trust, submissive party disobeys, causing the dominant party to lose trust and become more authoritarian, causing the cycle to repeat itself into oblivion. The COVID epidemic has been the perfect breeding ground for two factors that further exacerbate the violence of this cycle, despair and misery, and a vastly unequal and seemingly rigged distribution of this despair and misery. Tons of innocent people are succumbing to the disease every single day, and many more are having their livelihoods utterly destroyed by the regulations put in place to protect them. Meanwhile, Amazon and all the other big corporations are doing astoundingly well and sucking up all the resources. If there is one thing that I hope people take away from this episode, it is the importance of empathy above all, even for those who you think you should or will despise. Everyone has a story, and if you have the time, they tend to be worth hearing. Tune in next episode to enjoy something a little bit more lighthearted. Happy holidays, everybody!